I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome back. This is Chasing Ghost. This is episode 15, T.E. Lawrence and the Gorilla Mind, part two. A little bit of housekeeping. I wanted to thank all of my listeners, new and uh, who have listened to it from the beginning. In all, uh, we're nearly at 30,000 discrete downloads, which is pretty amazing. Uh, that's in September of last year. Uh, some other notes, uh, cgpodcast at pm.me, that is cgpodcast at pm.me is the way that you can get in touch with me. There's going to be a major change in the Bupert family. We are moving from the American Southwest to just due south of Tampa, Florida in October. There may be a pause in episodes, but I will see what I can do to maintain my fortnightly cadence. A special shout out to Abram and the lads, listeners, who uh, got in touch with me to meet me personally, five of these guys, and uh, we had a wonderful uh, early evening together discussing various things, and I feel so honored and privileged, not only that Abram and, and his friends reached out to me and wanted to meet me personally at a, uh, at a local restaurant here in Arizona, but the fact that meeting them was such an honor and privilege for me because it renews my faith in masculine America and knowing that it is not on such a decline that it will disappear in a generation. So, Abram, shout out to you. When I was doing further research for this particular podcast series, and I had mentioned in part one in the last podcast episode that I didn't know how many parts there would be to this. I still don't. But one thing I wanted to do was explore in more detail the fact that my suspicion is T.E. Lawrence being marinated, immersed, and for a lifetime fascinated by medieval Europe and medieval Christendom and medieval Christendom's collision with Islam during that time continues to fascinate me. I think it informs why Lawrence did what he did. There is a great debate in history on great events or great men. Is it events that drive men to do what they do? Is it great men that drive the events? Uh, horse before the cart, cart before the horse. Uh, I, I'm not certain where I stand on that, but I do know that it is men who step into the hazard, who step into this space where these tremendous decisions are made that echo in eternity, as we've heard in previous cinema, that inform where one may play out with that. So I don't have an answer. Is it great men or great events? I, I would have to say it depends. And of course, it, it is a um, probably more so a combination of both than anything else. Lawrence was an egghead. He was a scholar. He was a deep reader. He was a creature of his time. He was a creature of not only the beginning of the 20th century, 
but the ending and the cusp of Victorian England. In 1916, 17, and 18, he finds himself involved in World War I, a conflagration that consumed the Western world, if not the totality of the globe, for years to come. I often think of World War I and World War II as the same conflict with an interregnum because World War II would not have occurred if World War I hadn't occurred. And of course, what we discover is that at the end of the Victorian era and the beginning of the Edwardian era, we had almost a hundred years of peace between Europeans for the most part with some slight interregnums like the Crimean War and things like that. But nonetheless, since Napoleon, the world had not been absorbed in a world in which sides, in this case a bifurcation of sides, took their stands and went to war with each other. Simply hadn't happened, and now it happened as a result of August, September 1914, and everything that came before that, to bring the world into World War I. I always find myself intrigued by the beginning of the 20th century and the way World War I totally changed the way the world would operate from that point forward in what I would argue is a much less peaceful fashion and would lead to the complete destruction of the colonial world order to emancipate those colonies and such and become nation-states in and of themselves, which, of course, as any amateur historian in the audience knows, didn't make war an anachronism nor something that no longer happened. We know better than that, and I plan on covering in future episodes uh, various colonial histories, much like I have when I talked about French Indochina and French Algeria when I talked about the French guerrilla experience earlier. So what is this thing, medieval Christendom, that captured Lawrence's imagination and, I would suggest, motivated not only what he did in the Middle East at the time, but gave him an edge among all the British who could liaise with the Arab tribes at the time under Prince Faisal in a way that none of the others could. And let's keep in mind, too, that Lawrence was an eccentric. Lawrence was odd. But the British have a history of not only encouraging eccentricity, maybe in their leaders, maybe in their line units and things like that. They don't discourage it as the American army has for the longest time. Uh, One can make the case that Benedict Arnold, clearly the most talented general officer in the Revolutionary War on the colonial side, fighting London at the time, had his eccentricities. But nonetheless, maybe that was a partial talent stack of what made him such a terrific soldier, officer, planner, and operational lever, level operator. But nonetheless, maybe that's, uh, that's a discussion that we can have in the future sometime. But getting back to Lawrence, getting back to this eccentric man, this scholar, this man who knew so many languages, this man who seemed to be, as I alluded to earlier, the right man for the right time and the right place. And it turned out that for England during the war, it was terrific. For England after the war, not so much. 
and we will discuss that in a future episode of this series when we talk about post-World War I Lawrence and how he dealt with the deceit, perfidy, and absolute arrogance and hubris of how the British and the West handled and suborned the promises that they had made to the Arab tribes that fought to extinguish the Turkish presence in Arabia proper. As a brief aside, I often wonder that the ink spots where J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were members of a arguing, debating, and writing society at the turn of the century in Britain, if only they had met with Lawrence at the time. I Maybe they had met, maybe they hadn't, but what a fascinating turn of events it would have been if at the conclusion of World War I, especially with a promise in Seven Pillars of Wisdom, uh, Lawrence's magnum opus, if he had gone on to write some more. So what is mi- the Middle Ages and what is Christendom? Well, the early Middle Ages, and I won't use the term Dark Ages because I happen to think that that is an incorrect term to employ. We find in 476 AD, the last Roman emperor in the West is uh, driven out of office, as it were, and the period most historians assign as the early medieval time through the 11th century starts. And then from the 11th century through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment area comprises the latter portion of what is referred to as medieval times. And in this case, we are talking about medieval Christendom. So I was real, I've always gotten the sense, not having read anything formally that makes the connection between Lawrence and medievalism, that that connection was certainly there. And what do I find? But a book by one M.D. Allen called The Medievalism of Lawrence of Arabia. And in that book, I found many of the things I'd been searching for for the longest time. Allen makes a really interesting observation in that looking at the first sentence of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, published in 1922. Quote, some of the evil of my tale may have been inherent in our circumstances, end of quote, could serve as an introduction to Lawrence's life as a whole, not merely to the two years in the desert. He was vigorously intelligent, variously capable, impressionable, and high-mindedly ambitious. Lawrence imbibed the neo-chivalric enthusiasms of his class and time, and might I say a class and time that was influenced by medieval Christendom, making himself vulnerable to the shattering effect of the discovery of a largely non-chivalric world beyond Oxford's walls. Here's something really peculiar about human beings that everybody who is listening to this podcast knows in their hearts and minds. Whatever you're exposed to, whatever you read, whoever your family is, whoever your circle of friends is, All of these influences shape who you are, shape who you become, and shape both the mistakes and the triumphs of your life. Hence, we have Lawrence. Now, I want to quote extensively from Alan's book in one regard. Quote, You are, wrote Lawrence to Vivian Richards, concerning Richards' response to the 1922 Seven Pillars, intoxicated with the splendor of the story. That's as it should be. The story I have to tell is one of the most splendid ever given a man for writing. From T. Lawrence, 50 Letters, page 8. Behind these words is the joy of someone who has found his long-sought subject and the confirmation of a long-held feeling of singularity and superiority. Lawrence's adventure had been lived before it had been written, and it could not have been lived had not the land of his dreams existed, more or less. The outsider of Oxford, the eccentric of Carchemish, 
the misfit of Cairo, had justified his innate belief in the uniqueness of his destiny. Seven Pillars of Wisdom is a product of a long-standing ambition to create a work of art, the material for this work having been provided by its author Chivalric Adventures in an Antique Land. The impetus towards these adventures arose from chivalric reading, reading pursued with th such thoroughness because it flattered and reinforced certain idealistic elements in the young Lawrence's character. Lawrence is one of those people for whom finally there is no distinction between life and literature. Seven Pillars is the product of an identifiable phase in the life of its creator. Had it been written earlier or later, it would not be the work we possess now. Just as a fleeting glimpse of a smiling face may show us one abstracted half-second's emotion from the growth and fading of amusement or pleasure, one ever so slightly changing part of the movement in life of human response. So Seven Pillars shows us the state of Lawrence's being in the few years following the end of the war. I've already compared the arc of aspiration and the decline of disillusion to a parabola. Seven Pillars represents the summit of the parabola, equidistant in emotion if not exactly, in years both from the joy of innocent medievalizing discovery begun independently abroad when, quote, I was 17, which is the age at which I suddenly discovered myself, remembered by Lawrence even in 1927 as a dream of delight from his letters on page 553. And from the desolating thoroughness with which he turned his back on his younger self, people are a nuisance. They will not understand that I have no intention of continuing the acquaintances I had before 1914. That part of the business is finished. I am a different person now. From his letters, page 373. Lawrence had read, without admiring, the works of Richard Burton. Let me take a pause here. Richard Burton, discoverer of the Nile, a man who smuggled the... Um, the uh, Arabian Nights out of Arabia, Arabia, one of the first uh, non-Muslim believers to actually go to Mecca. And there are a number of great books on Burton, which I highly recommend. The Devil Drives, A Life of Sir Richard Francis Burton by Fawn M. Brody. And one that's a little more accessible, Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton by Edward Price, the secret agent who made the pilgrimage to Mecca discovered the Kama Sutra and brought the Arabian Nights to the West. I think I've discovered yet another episode of the future in which I will cover Burton. Burton, different from Lawrence in so many ways, his response to uh, Doughty's tribulations, the Doughty whom Lawrence always treated with such gentle reverence, was to write angrily and uncomprehendingly of an Englishman being compelled to stand the buffet from knaves the smell of sweat. Nonetheless, wrote of the Molokat in terms almost undistinguishable, undistinguishable from those of Blunt. He goes on to claim that, quote, from ancient periods of the Arab's history, we find him practicing knight errancy, the wildest forms of chivalry. He quotes with certain sayings of Antar, this valiant man hath defended the honor of women. Mercy, my lord, is the noblest quality of the noble. And above all, birth is a boast of the fine. Noble is the youth who beareth every ill, who clotheth himself in mail during the noontide heat, and who wandereth through the outer darkness at night. Burton writes, too, of the Albanians that they have yet another point of superiority over us. They cultivate the individuality of the soldier, whilst we strive to make him a mere automaton. In the days of European chivalry, battles were a system of well-fought duels. 
Lawrence found Blunt a far more congenial man and writer than Burton, but the two share many beliefs. Now, keep in mind that Lawrence is not the only modern author, not the only combatant of 1914 to 1918 to represent his battle as being in the tradition of medieval encounters, but he's probably the only modern author to do, author to do so convincingly. David Jones' book, In Parentheses, published in 1937, attempts the same thing. This work, a mixture of prose and poetry, crammed even more densely, and I have mentioned just how turgid and thick Seven Pillars of Wisdom is. With his allusions to chivalric and other writings, and also to myth and ritual, relates the experience of a British Union from, from December 1915 in embarkation to July 1916 and decimation in battle. Jones is concerned with establishing an at least partial identification of the Tommies of the Great War with the heroes of Mallory. That would be Thomas Mallory. I think the day-by-day in the wasteland, the sudden violences and long stillnesses, the sharp contours and unformed voids of that mysterious existence profoundly affected the imaginations of those who suffered it. It was a place of enchantment. It is perhaps best described in Mallory, Book 4, Chapter 15, The Landscape Spoke with a Grimly Voice. In addition, he tends to see the perennial experience of the soldier, especially as expressed in The Boast of Part 4, as a permanently valid metaphor for the necessary endurances and inevitable sufferings of human existence. I happen to think that Lawrence's personal torment, probably not least of all being a homosexual at the beginning of the 20th century, even if it is in Great Britain, that his self-torture, his self-loathing to a certain extent, uh, it it amplified his eccentricity. It amplified his eccentricity to brilliance. But Lawrence does yearn for the possibility of belief. He is unsettled at best, tormented at worst by the absence of a meaningful framework. On one occasion in the desert, quote, we started on one of those clean dawns which woke up the senses with the sun, while the intellect, tired after the thinking of the night, was yet abed. For an hour or two on such a morning, the sound, sense, and colors of the world struck man individually and directly, not filtered through or made typical by thought. They seem to exist sufficiently themselves, and the lack of design and of carefulness in creation no longer irritated. Lawrence would have been happier had he been able to share the religious beliefs of his brother Montag Robert, who did see design and carefulness in creation. Toward the end of his life, he considered the turning of small branches by a storm into gleaming ropes of ice to be evidence of the imminent imminent second coming of Christ. Now, in such a decentered world, death and battle also loses its significance. The Christian belief that sustained the heroic martyr Roland, and by extension all beliefs, become almost collective fantasies. Quote, with man instinctive, anything believed by two or three had a miraculous sanction to which individual ease and life might honestly be sacrificed. To man rational, wars of nationality were as much a cheat as religious wars, and nothing was worth fighting for, nor could fighting. The act of fighting hold any meed of intrinsic value. Life was so deliberately private that no circumstances could, ju- no circumstances could justify one man in laying violent hands upon another. This is from pages 438 and 39 in my edition of Seven Pillars of Wisdom. By the time Lawrence comes to write The Mint and to live the self-reified life described therein, he has abandoned all attempt at comprehension. The medieval world of faith and the actions faith inspired being represented only by jeering carving. We are now far indeed from the statuary of Chartres. Quote, and this is from the mint page 67. 
We sat to pray, and the emanations of wet wool and sweat gathered over us. Surely we were steeped in flesh. Before me stood the font, from whose quarterfile panel into my face leered a medieval face, with ringed mouth and protruding tongue. Its lewdness somehow matched our prison-colored lolling heads, while the Padre read a lesson from St. Paul, prating of the clash of flesh and spirit and of our duty to fight the body's manifold sins. The catalogues of these sins roused us to tick off on grubby fingers what novelties were left us to explore. For the rest, we were just uncomprehending. Our ranks were too healthy to catch this diseased antithesis of flesh and spirit. Unquestioned life is a harmony, though then not in the least Christian. Sometimes the ironies and dispiriting disbelief in Lawrence just makes one want to pause and think, well, if you're a medievalist, and you're a medievalist who has studied not only medieval Christendom, but the clash and collision between said Christendom and the Muslim faith, why would you not, if not possessing the faith yourself, be so dismissive of Christian faith in and of itself? It may have been this very dismissiveness that provided him a bridge in the Arab world when he was liaising with Prince Faisal's and his deputies and the princes and the soldiers and such during the conflict that allowed him to be rather unchristian. And maybe the perception of that helped him to bridge the gap as an Englishman with his Arab charges at the time. Now, it just so happens that at the beginning of the 20th century and Lawrence's time in Oxford, there was a medieval revival and an interest in said time that occurred, and it just uh, hit everything in the society and the culture at the time in England. He lived, wrote Vivian Richards of Lawrence's Oxford period, in a world of old things, castles, churches, memorial brasses, pottery, and books, books, books. That's Vivian Richards, page 21. Now, having discussed Lawrence's travels in search of artifacts from the Middle Ages, I, I turn now to his reading in medieval and neo-medieval literature. Lawrence was one of the world's great readers. From boyhood to disillusioned maturity, he read omnivorously and commented frequently on what he found. An early letter shows him fitting together his experience and memories of his reading, explaining one in terms of the other. It contains, in fact, Lawrence's first surviving literary illusion, the first of hundreds, some of them embedded, unacknowledged, in the text of Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Quote, the moon was full and glorious. I cannot say whether the closed effects or the reflection on the water were the best, but the ensemble was perfect and left nothing to be desired. I never before understood properly Tennyson's long glories of the autumn moon, but I see his reason now for mentioning it so often. Apparently, the young Lawrence was no better at remembering the lines that caught his imagination than the older Lawrence, who admitted that he was never sure of quoting correctly even the simplest of his long favorite poems. The words and the long glories of the winter moon are to be found in Morty Arthur, line 192 in the passing of Arthur. Tennyson nowhere uses Lawrence's version. Lawrence may not have been able to quote from memory, but he obviously knew Tennyson well by the time he was 18. One of his prizes at school was an essay on Tennyson, whom he had selected for special study. I would suggest further that Lawrence's medievalism was part of his action in the desert, the link between 
the somewhat precious aspects of his medievalism and, 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 and his studies of military fortification. Remember, that's what he did his Oxford master's thesis on with their accompanying exercise in physical hardihood. That interest in fine printing in such poems as Rossetti's The Stream's Secret and in the aesthetics of medieval cathedrals coexisted with a capacity for military leadership and accomplishment that is a principal source of Lawrence's enduring popular fascination. If he were just an esthete or just a soldier, he would be less generally interesting. His reluctance to accept the world about him and desire to escape in dream and idealistic action resulted from immersion in the Middle Ages. Lawrence has taken us from the 19th century medieval revival in Victorian England to the works of the medieval period proper. He bridges that linkage to the heroic, and heroic dynamics, of course, inform a lot of his behavior and his almost theatrical leadership style when it came to dealing and liaising and even leading portions and uh, large factions in the Arab army that he was charged with using against the Turks. I like to be balanced in my podcasts. I don't like to engage in any kind of hagiography. I like to give a balanced approach to these things. And if you think that the, uh, the vigors, the slings and arrows of today's celebrity culture and reading culture, more media culture, where there's a lot of stuff slung from left to right, from he to him to her, all the rest of it. Wow. You should read some of the early stuff that occurred. Well, one can go back to the Roman ages and find the same thing. But early in 1920, Robert Graves met Lawrence at a guest night at All Souls. Now, this friendship between the two men developed to the point that Graves eventually became Lawrence's first biographer, unless we count the American journalist Lowell Thomas, whose sensational and eminently unreliable account with Lawrence of Arabia came out in 1925. Uh, Lawrence did much to help Graves, who admits himself that two-thirds of the book was a mere condensation of seven pillars material. Most of the rest of Lawrence and the Arabs, 1927, came from Lawrence, who supplied notes and answered questions. Some of the notes concerned his early, earlier reading. Uh, Lawrence even helped the military historian Basil Liddell Hart in the same way, if not to the same extent, and told Hart, a later biographer, that I also read nearly every manual of chivalry. Remember that my period was the Middle Ages, always. Now, these claims went unexamined until Richard Aldington, prepared his vitriolic Lawrence of Arabia, a, bio a biographical inquiry. Aldington's reaction to the man he came to regard as, <laughs> this is funny, phony from start to finish, a lazy little bastard, literally, and a filthy little lying bugger, resulted in a book that caused one of the 20th century's most impressive literary brawls. Friends of Lawrence, like B.H. Liddell Hart, rallied to his defense, defense and attempted to rebut Aldington's arguments in some detail. However, Aldington, whose research had begun in 1951, was a formidable adversary. Quote, is there anyone in Oxford left who would know about his French Provencal claim? I looked through the list of his library, which contains no Provencal texts, and a few chansons suggest in translations of modern French rewrites, and among them several books which have pre-war dates in his writing and are mentioned in the letters as he bought during the French tours. He is supposed to have lost a lot of books and posted many in bank letter boxes to get rid of them. The lack of French medieval texts, not a dozen, is surprising if he were such a scholar, but then 
he may have lost or sold them. A year later, a TEL query, among other thrasonical brags, he says he read all of the manuals of chivalry. Where are they? Perhaps he merely means the Romans in Languedoc, which I suspect he read in translation, there being several such and hardly any texts in his physical library. Or perhaps Frossard? I am teased with a half-memory that Caxton issued a bouquet of chevrolet, formerly of the Francois. I know Caxton did a book of curtsy in the Book of Good Manners, so perhaps Lawrence meant them. But are they manuals of chivalry? Could one say that if Christine de Person, even, you will rightly infer from this, and I strongly suspect, even L's alleged erudition, Lawrence in this case, to be largely bogus. That's from A Passionate Prodigality, page 57. Now, let's take Lawrence's claims in the order to which Aldington here approaches them. The first of the paragraph quoted above eventually appeared in the biographical inquiry. The same po points are made there in more careful phrasing. Aldington observes that Lawrence makes only one reference to Provencal literature when he tells his younger brother, William, if you can read history and Bertrand together, you would not dream of following Ezra, pa Ezra Pound. And in this case, he meant uh, Bertrand, of course, as Bertrand de Bourne, whose castle Lawrence afterwards visited, and the other reference presumably to Ezra Pound's poem, Altafort. Now, Lawrence's claim of immersion in the poetry of the Provencal troubadours is indeed puzzling, and not only because of the paucity of references to it, or the absence of texts at Clouds Hill, his home. It is true that Lawrence was at Oxford 1907 to 1910 when Provencal literature was nearer the forefront of the general educated consciousness than it is now. Hugh Kenner, author of The Pound Era, The Age of Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, and Wyndham Lewis, writes that there existed then a public, prepared by the work of Rossetti, for an inexpensive bilingual Dante, which went through many reprintings, and the H.J. Chaters, The Troubadours of Dane. Look, I, I don't want to go through all of this, but what it does is it questions Lawrence's not only considerable erudition and alleging to have a library in which he read every book, but it goes on. Now, I want to make one point about libraries. You have, in the words of Umberto Eco, you have libraries and anti-libraries. Libraries are those that you possess in which, if someone asks you, yes, I've read all of them, some of them, half of them, whatever the case may be. The anti-library and Echo's framework is those books one uses for reference. Uh, probably a full one quarter of my physical library here at home is an anti-library, which I have no notion whatsoever of ever, le ever reading one of those books from cover to cover, but simply use it for reference, whether it be a reference text or texts that are just too difficult to read from cover to cover, but provide me with a means to exemplify, amplify, or discover a depth to something that I previously didn't have. And I'll close by saying that when it comes to T.E. Lawrence's reading of Mallory, for instance, uh, Mallory in the Desert during the war, Lawrence must often have seen coincidences between actions and beliefs on the printed page before him and in the actions and beliefs of the living men around him. Most importantly, Mallory's knights and Lawrence's Arabs both show an interest in reputation and honor. Terms often subsumed by the earlier writer, and sometimes by the later, under the word worship. In little matters, an unfailing courteous formality of speech, especially in greetings. This is natural to both Malorian knights, 
of the 14th century and 20th century Arabs, but rings strangely in modern Occidental ears. The words of Sir Percival and an old man on meeting, Sir, says the former, ye be welcome, God keep you, replies the later, and of whence be ye. Well, that might have been translated word for word from the Arabic. Lawrence would have heard almost those exact expressions thousands of times. In greater matters, family and clan are important to Mallory's characters, and Lawrence's companions, in a way, they are no longer important to us. So why would we trouble ourselves with learning what Lawrence read at Oxford or read throughout his life or how that may have influenced him? Well, let's look at it this way from a media perspective. At the beginning of the 20th century, no radio, no television. There was stage, there was play, there was theater, there was books, there was discussion of set books. There was time slowing down at the time to consume books and discuss books, and that was the means by which people conferred intellectual heft, intellectual arguments, and even points of contention between themselves in the moral or virtue sphere. The point I'm trying to make is that if you examine Lawrence's influences before he went to Arabia, I would suggest one of the reasons he was so bloody successful was not only because of the talent stack that he brought, not only the fact that he could master the languages of those people whom he was conferring, speaking, and fighting with, but that his notion of medieval Christendom, whether he believed all of it or not, his familiarity certainly found him allied with the Arabs in a fashion because he under, understood their contemporary medieval sensibilities, honor codes, kinship, chivalry, fighting, knighthood, these kind of squabbings from single duels to mass war and such, all reverberated in Lawrence's head to reflect the very fighting that and medieval fortresses and the kind of things that he had studied in college that, despite being hundreds of years old, resonated with the fight that he was fighting outside of the Western Front, outside of the African Front, here in the frontiers of Arabia, in which he was not only a champion of the Arabs, was, but was trying to put the Turks out of the war and had, had in large measure succeeded in doing so to ease the pressure on the Arabs and get the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe at the time, out of the fight entirely. Lawrence had nothing to do with getting Russia out of the fight. The Germans had a lot to do with getting Russia out of the fight. Once the Germans could get Russia out of the fight, they were able to continue fighting in World War I. Much the same here when it came to the British wanting to get the Turks out of the fight so that they could focus all their efforts on the Western Front. And Lawrence succeeded wildly in that regard, and he was able to bring that off. So again, at the beginning of the podcast, I had entertained, well, what makes Lawrence so curious and eccentric and all of these things? And does it just so happen that this indubitably great man, T.E. Lawrence, whatever his failings at a human being, did he manage to wrest a theater from the Turks and the Ottoman Empire, lay it low, and provide a strategic and grand strategic advantage to the British at the time? 
in their course of arms. From 17 to 18, if it hadn't been the release of this unrelenting pressure of the Turks in the East and in Great Arabia and, and such, the British may have had a much harder time of it than they eventually did as a result of Lawrence's successes. Now, in the next episode, we are going to entertain precisely what these military campaigns were about from the beginning to the end. And then in a follow-on episode, we will talk about Lawrence's misgivings about the lies, perfidy, and British and American and greater European intransigence and delusion and the fact that they did not deliver to the Arabs what they promised them in what was going to be the authorship of making for a post-colonial age. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions, constructive comments, concerns, please email me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill out.